Welcome to the Small Business Edge Podcast with Brian Moran. Now, here's your host, Brian Moran. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Small Business Edge Podcast. Our guest this week is Karen Dillon. She is an author, former editor at Harvard Business Review Magazine, and the co-author of three books with Clayton Christensen. Uh, the first one was How Will You Measure Your Life, which, and, and as my listeners know, probably one of my, my favorite book of all time was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, it had such an impact on my life. And sadly, I have not read that book. How will you measure your life? So I'm literally, after this podcast, I'm ordering it, and we're going to have Karen back on later this year to talk about that book. She also co-authored with Christensen, Competing Against Luck, which is a phenomenal title. And lastly, The Prosperity Paradox, How Innovation Can Lift Nations Out of Poverty. So I'm excited today because we're going to be talking about her newest book, uh, which is out right now, and it's called The Micro-Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It. And it's a book she co-authored, again, with Rob Cross, uh, who is a professor at Babson. So with that, I want to welcome my friend, Karen Dillon, to the podcast. Welcome. Thank you, Brian. I'm so glad to be here with you. This is really fun. This is real. It's funny. You and I are the same age, and I feel like you've done like 900 things more than I've ever done in my life. <laughs> like I look at you, I'm the one who sat in the back of the classroom, and you're the one who sat in the front. <laughs> I was always the second seat from the front. I couldn't stand being right in front. So we might have been in the same classroom, but yeah, you've done a million things too. We've just done different things. Okay. Well, that was very nice of you to say. The, the way we know each other is that we worked together at Inc. Magazine a little while ago. We were not going to say how long ago, <laughs> but a little while ago. A little while ago. Yeah. I was on the sales side. You were on the editorial side. And I think it was it was not a Chinese wall, but it was pretty close. You were up in Boston. I was in New York. Yeah, we had we had the right uh, amount of um, boundaries and integrity, and uh, we yes. did we did things well. We did things properly, so that's so Absolutely. that's that was that was an okay thing. Yeah, it, it was a that was a great time. I, I I fully enjoyed that. That was a great time, and I am still really actually connected to and close to many of my in colleagues. So it was a really yeah. special group of people doing something we cared about together. And look at us, look at us now, Brian. Look at us now. Here we are. We've come full circle. <laughs> um, all right. So my first question is this. So, and now speaking from somebody who's done a lot of partnerships in, in my entrepreneurial career, uh, many of which I love, but some of them, which were, were, I should never have done. So you co-authored this book with Rob Cross, who I said was a, a, a leadership professor at Babson college. And you did, you co-authored three books with Clayton Christensen. What's the secret formula to a successful content partnership? Because we're going to talk about the micro stress effect, and 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 that almost feels like a macro stress effect, right? <laughs> when you partnership with somebody, because that's you you are committed to it, and it could take. I think this book took you what it it took you a couple of years to write, right? Well, right between the research and then the writing. Yes, books as you know, book projects are slow and take a long time from start to finish. And we started it before the pandemic, kept going during the pandemic, and then it's coming out now. So there was it's been a long it's been a long process, but it's it's a very good question, and um, I, I've never been asked that before. But I think what I would say is just being a true partner with someone. Like we agree, like we we are true equal partners in the 
the work, in the thinking, in the respect for one another. I personally don't ever want to work with someone that um, doesn't see me that way. Like there, you know, as a person who's written a lot, I could probably make a lot of money being a ghostwriter for people or, um, you know, being someone's, you know, backstop working on editing something. That's not very fulfilling to me, but being working with someone where we're going to engage in conversations and think about the ideas together and there, and we each bring something to the party. And then on top of that, you have to like the person. And so I didn't know Rob before we started working on this book project together, really. Someone recommended that we that we connect. He was a super fan of the book you mentioned, How Will You Measure Your Life? And so he met and met me and presented his thinking and where he was on these ideas early on. And I just thought it was really interesting. So genuine partner, mutual respect, kind of like the person enough to, you know, to to really be in the trenches with them. And then the final thing is that you're both working on something you really care about. It's not, you know, no one's doing it just for hire to fill time or to make some money. You, you care about what you're working on. And that makes it that makes for a common bond. Like we both cared about this work a lot. And we wanted to get it out into the world. So that's the secret. Listeners, that's your first takeaway from this podcast, the secret <laughs> to a successful partnership, be it content or or otherwise. Okay, so you have a book out. It came out yesterday, right? And it's called The Micro-Stress Effect. Now, when I read it and I read the forward, two things popped into my head. Death by a thousand cuts and <laughs> don't let a $5 problem become a $5,000 nightmare, right? So what is micro stress effect. So micro stress itself is something that we identified in our research, which was something we didn't really have language for in the beginning. We were doing a project where we were interviewing high performers in really well-known organizations, and they were all people who had been picked by their own organizations as high performers. We did, you know, an equal number of men and women. Mm -hmm. And we're sitting down to, to sort of figure out what how they were so much more effective than the rest of us at getting things done. They were sort of top of their game. And as we started to kind of just ask questions about what they do, how they do it, it's sort of became clear into the interviews that a lot of these people, these high performers were just hanging on by a thread, really. They, were, they weren't that much better than the rest of us. They were just maybe better at disguising it. And what was getting to them, what was making their life so difficult wasn't necessarily the major stresses you would associate with life. So a macro stress, you know, death in the family, yeah. a really crazy difficult client, um, your relationship falling apart. They were what we started to call micro stresses. And, and micro stresses are small moments of stress that happen from routine interactions on a daily basis with people you that you're close with at work or at home that are so frequent, but yet almost so invisible because they're so quick and so and they happen in such a passing moment that you don't really even notice that they're happening. You just let absorb them into your day. But cumulatively, they add up to a really significant toll. So when you said death by a thousand cuts or or what was the other thing you said? The five dollar problem because five dollar problem. That, that's exactly it. You in our definition of micro stress, it, it's it we specifically refer to interactions with other people. So it's not just that you missed the bus and it's really frustrating. It's that you left your house in the morning exchanging curt words with one of your kids or your spouse and you feel bad about yourself all day. Or, you know, you have a misalignment with a colleague at work and it causes you extra work and your working relationship's a little bit off. It's not terrible bad things. They're routine things. And the point is that every single one of them is manageable on their own, but none of us ever have one. You know, we have dozens of them in a day. And so the reality is as they layer up, they imprint on your brain, like your body is starting to feel the effects of that stress, but you almost barely remember it because it happened so quickly and it was such a routine thing, but your body knows it happened and your body's feeling the toll of all those micro stresses adding up. 
I'm, I'm laughing in my head because I'm I, my next question I want to ask is, well, what does that say about me if that if I don't let that bother me? <laughs> I, that actually, <laughs> no, that actually says something something really interesting. I'll tell you. Do you want me to tell you what it what it says or you want to get to wait till later? I, I was interview? being facetious. It would oh. bother me. But yeah, now that you now that you say there's an answer to it, what does that say about a person if they, if it, they don't let it bother them? Well, so this subset of our research group, so we had 300 high performers. There was a subset of people, just a small minority. We started calling them the 10 percenters because it was it was a rare, more rare person who who fit that description. They basically were, they had as many micro stresses as the rest of us, but they were able to rise above them. And, and what it said, they did a couple things it said about them is they were better at pushing back on some of them. They didn't sort okay. of just let things keep happening to them. They, they were proactive about um, making sure they had interactions with people that were productive, or if they were misaligned with a colleague on something and was going to cause stress, they talked about it and they fixed it. And they worked routine things into their day to kind of not let micro stress just kind of, you know, flood all over the place. Um, and another thing it said is they actually were good at building what we called a multidimensional life, meaning sometimes you just have to rise above it. It's going to happen. We can't eliminate all the micro stress, but the people who didn't let it bother them as much had other things in their life that were important to them that just help keep all that stuff in perspective. So for someone for whom their entire life is work and then going home, that's true for many of us. And you don't have any other sources of energy and stimulation and connection with people and things you care about. It makes anything that goes wrong at work or at home, you know, even even seem even more terrible. But when you when it's part of again our term a multidimensional life, you're connected with people outside of those things. It actually just helps. It literally helps your brain process and put those things in little perspective boxes rather than letting it overwhelm you. So that I'm guessing it tells me that you have a multidimensional life. I love it. I who who knew <laughs> who knew? I'm going to write that. I'm going to put that on my resume. <laughs> the the uh, no, so I'm a big quote guy. I love motivational and inspirational quotes, and I like to learn from other people. You know, uh, uh, Norm Brodsky once said to me, um, and I know he got this from somewhere else, but he said, "A smart man learns from his own mistakes. A wise man learns from the mistakes of others." But something that I heard a long time ago, which really stuck with me, was, "Don't worry twice." So. You know, you you don't worry about what may or may not happen, because if you do, you find out that ninety five percent of everything that you worried about never came to fruition. Never happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if it happens, then you can worry about it. But until it does, stop worrying. Like just live in this moment. Like when I think about what you're talking about. It's not Pandora's box, right? It's not letting out all the ills in the world. Like, I, or now all of a sudden we're identifying these micro stresses, but it's facing your fears. It's facing your problems. It's facing the death by a thousand cuts. How do I stop that? I guess what my next question is, is this a recent phenomenon like this micro stress? Because when you think about when we when the iPhone came into existence in 2007 and the internet and social media and you write about in the book you and Rob um the always being on like a 24/7 life i feel like that that has added to all of these micro stresses so my question to you is this is it recent and if it is or or is it always been there and just technology has just you know sped it up exponentially 
It's the latter. It's always been there. We've always been capable of um, stressing each other out in small ways, just in routine life, right? But the but the technology and the way we work, the way even the way people work in teams, right? It used to be that we knew colleagues that we worked with for years. We were on a team. We got to know each other well. You knew what you could count on them to do, etc. Just the modern workplace means we get put into new teams and cross company teams, and we we get repurposed and we start working with different people in different ways because the needs of the organization are that. But you don't have that time just to build up that kind of long built trust in it. So it means right. the potential for those, you know, misalignments or uh, a colleague's stress affecting you somehow just gets amped up by the number of people you work with. And then on top of that, the pandemic, which um, sort of removed many of us from the social things I just mentioned that have become really important to you, um, it also meant that we had fewer boundaries between work and home. We, you know, we started working earlier and everybody was kind of engaged because we wanted to do the right thing during the pandemic. But organizations that would have, let's say, eight one-hour meetings in a day tried to help people by having half-hour meetings, but that would turn into 16 half-hour meetings in a day. <laughs> and so you have 16 to-do lists to follow up with and opportunities to kind of see a colleague not do the right thing or underperform in some way. We've just exponentially created the opportunity for microstress in the past few years, and, and technology has just made it even worse because, as you say, we're never not on. I mean, who doesn't absent-mindedly send a late night email that you don't think about, but that will trigger micro stress for someone else. You're getting it off your mind, right? Oh, can we make sure tomorrow we do whatever person probably sees it. Person's now going to think about it all night, maybe not be as engaged with their family for the rest of the night, maybe get up early to respond to you when you were just getting it off your mind because you wanted to send it out. We cause micro stress for other people all the time and technology makes it easier for us to do that without thinking. So we're as much the proponent of it. We make it happen as we are the people who are receiving microstress. You know what this book is doing for me as we talk about it and as I read it is all of a sudden it's bringing back in all of these quotes and all of these things that people have told me in my life. My mother said to me when I was 15 years old, sufficient for the day is the evil thereof. Ooh, what does that mean? Say that again. Sufficient for the day is the know, evil right? Can you imagine sitting, hearing that at 15? Like, holy shit, was that Latin? I, I'm never going to. It took me years to truly understand it. Sufficient for the day is yeah. the evil thereof. Do what you can do today. Yeah. Be happy with it. Get a good night's sleep. Wake up tomorrow and address what's still there. Like, oh, I think that's great. You don't. That's great. Yeah, it, it really. And and I'm give, mom. I'm giving you credit. Um, it, but it really was something that that has stuck with me my whole life. Sufficient for the day. And the Irish talk about you know all we ever need to solve our problems is a good laugh, a good cry, and a good night's sleep. Like. All are all all are true. The only thing I would add to that conversation from our book is and, and friends and good people to do it with because that's one of the important things is to to have connections with other human beings, even in small ways. That can be a really powerful antidote to micro stress. I love that, and and that's one of my questions. But I don't want to jump ahead. But you are pinging me all over the place right now with things that I learned thirty and forty years ago. Right. That that people have said to me that and that's the beauty of kind of life. Right. Is that we're all messengers that the the lot of this stuff was taught thousands of years ago and it's just been handed down. And it's you can learn from it if you pay attention to what people are saying. And I think that's what this book does, that that, okay. that now you're addressing it in a new light because you can't solve today's problems with yesterday's theories. 
That's I mean, true. You, can, you can apply some of them, but they didn't have the internet, you know, when when Socrates was around and, and they didn't have iPhones and Androids, you know, in, in the 1800s. So these are new problems that we've created for ourselves. But but let me get into the book a little bit, because it really is fascinating. So you talk about 14 distinct type of microstress. You So you interviewed 300 high-performing people, men and women, right, from all different industries, ages, and whatnot. So you really yep. got a nice, um, like, kind of a research base that you could work from. And within those answers, you identified 14 distinct types of microstress. How how did you seg- segment them and identify them? I think it was three categories. We put them into three broad categories. And so 14 sounds like a lot. But if you look, if anyone looks at the list, they'll see like, I have that, I have that, I have that. So the reality is it will, we will all relate to them. I will exactly, I'll relate to them. But I think thinking of them in the three broad buckets may be helpful. The first set are are ones we call micro stresses that drain your capacity to get things done. These are the things that are easiest for you you to realize that you're facing, right? You look at your to-do list, you look at the sticky, I'm looking at my computer, sticky notes all over my computer, the things on your calendar. They're just asks and requests and things that disrupt your ability to get your own work done. A good example, I've said it a couple of times, but you might sense you're working on something with someone and suddenly realize you and your colleague are just slightly misaligned, not terrible. It's not a hostile colleague, but he or she is trying to get, you know, maximize revenue and you're trying to maximize the audience that that your podcast reaches. And it's not a problem per se, but you have to figure out how to get back in alignment to be effectively working together. Or it it could just be a, a surge in responsibilities that, that comes to you from life. You know, you just had just extra stuff that happens to you. Um, we, we have things that just make it difficult for us to get things done. Uh, a manager or a boss who is unpredictable, an authority figure, unpredictable, not a bad guy, but might be really hot on this agenda today. And then two weeks later, asking to focus on this. And you're like, wait, we just finished working on that. And so those just small things happen. And it just affects your ability to get your own stuff done. Mm-hmm. Second category is a little harder to see, but really powerful is uh, micro stresses that deplete your emotional reserves. And there's are wow. things no one can see them but you, but an exchange with someone that just kind of takes a little bit out of you and it sort of just affects the rest of your day. I mentioned, you know, so many of us, you, you just get out of the house as a grump in the morning and you, you say something to your kid that you didn't, you know, that was snappy, not nice. And then you spend the rest of the day worrying about like, you know, are they okay? I feel bad. I, you know, want to make sure I see them tonight. Um, or just an exchange, like you, you look down at a text in the middle of a, a work meeting from your wife or from a kid that's vaguely concerning, nothing really terrible there, but you know, someone said, I'm over this or wait, what does that mean? And then you're, you know, you're engaged in that micro stress for the rest of the day. Little things that happen. Lots of us are around people who like spray um, stress and we call that secondhand stress. You know, <laughs> you're not stressed yourself, but suddenly they're making you stress. They're worried about, you know, you talked about worrying about tomorrow's problem. There's, we all work with someone who's constantly worried about the things that could go wrong, that might be wrong, what something means, and you can't avoid sort of picking it up. There's a really bit interesting bit of research we mentioned in the book, which is that um, there's a study that shows that if you're exposed to social stress within two hours of eating a meal, so just normal routine social stress, nothing terrible, your body will metabolize that meal as if you ate 104 more calories than you did. And if that happened every day, you would gain 11 pounds. <laughs> well, you can imagine my whole life has been that then. 
<laughs> I'm like, there's me explained. There's me explained. <laughs> so that stuff is real. And it takes in, again, they're small and they're invisible, but they take a toll on us, you know, literally, physically. And then the third category are micro stresses that challenge your identity. Just something that happens that makes you just not feel good about yourself. Or, I mean, for many people, being in a job that's almost constructed in a way that it's impossible for you to succeed. You have so much to do. You're expected to do so much. You're only ever at things are only ever added to your to-do list and to your job description. That makes you feel like a failure just by the fact that the job is almost designed that no human being could do it. And so people don't feel good. That challenges their sense of identity of I am a high performer or I am effective or I am good collaborator because almost you almost can't. So none of those things I just mentioned are terrible things. We can all deal with them one by one. But it's just that we all have dozens of them in a day. And micro stress never, it's never like just the moment and gone. It has ripple effects. Even we I give an example in a book that I think every one of us can relate to. Someone, one of our high performers gets an email late in the day from her new boss, relatively new boss, asking for some prep for a presentation he's going to make to, I think it's the board. Um, and it's like, five o'clock and suddenly it does it's, it seems urgent but doesn't have enough detail and then this is a new boss she doesn't have a rapport with him yet so she sort of goes into panic mode wait when when is that due did i miss something she starts reaching out to other colleagues we need the data this way and this way she starts sort of anticipating what he wants but it ends up taking a couple hours of her time to kind of figure out what, what do i have can i get it back to him in the morning i want to impress him and by the time she's started her search and finished her search she's triggered others colleagues to have micro stress she's mm. gone home late her family life is not right that night because she'd wanted to talk to her son and he's gone to he's gone into his room already. It's just one little thing like an email that's probably just a poorly worded communication has triggered hours of micro stress for cumulatively for the, the people there. And, and we all have stuff like that. We all have things that ripple on well beyond the actual 30 seconds it took her to read that email. From the leader's perspective, from her new boss, a lesson here is don't cause micro stress. Like it, huge it, lesson, huge yeah. lesson. Sorry, so that, that's a right. great leadership. It, so a lot of our listeners are business owners, right? And they have 20, 30, 100 employees. So you can prevent micro stress on others by making sure you're clear in your communication. Or you say, if there's anything you don't understand about what I'm saying, please don't hesitate to call or email me. There are many things that, that bosses can do. And one of the exercises we have people do in the book is first to go through and sort of identify the systemic micro stresses that they that are most affecting them and where it's coming from. And it can come from colleagues, it can come from family members, it can come from various things. But then we ask them to do a second pass and say, take a minute and think about where you probably are causing other people micro stress. And everybody, everybody has a list. They when they stop to think of it that way, they they realize that they cause micro stress for other people. And it's not just being a good guy trying to minimize it that micro stress is almost surely going to boomerang back on you eventually, right? You're pushing your employees too hard. There's a rebellion or somebody burns out or um, you, you, some, a project gets screwed up because you've caused all kinds of micro stress and people haven't been able to focus or they put something aside to chase whatever you just asked them. So I, I think if you do an honest assessment of, um, both having kind of clear communication with your employees, but also think about what are you asking them? Like so many employees are just, they're so busy. They don't necessarily have time to stop with every request and um, just say, where does this fit in the list of priorities? How important is it? Are the, so just so you know, these are the resources it will take. Who should be, we be working with? All that kind of stuff. If you, if you give them permission to do that, ask them to. We want to, every time I'm making you a request of you, we want to just have a moment to kind of calibrate is, can you do this? Can we do this? This is how important it 
it is, this is lower in priority, that kind of thing. So it's interesting. If I'm being honest right now, people have said to me in the past, like in the past just six months, you know, wow, you you were really, you know, forceful, you know, or something like that. My my kids have said it, some people I work with. You know what it is? It's when I when I want to make sure I'm being clear that there's a sense of urgency, my voice will change or my words will change to make sure that it breaks through the clutter. That that's my intention. But it will come right. off as either being condescending or dictatorial or something like that. Like, hey, there's no other option here. This is what I need. This is when I need it. Get it done. And I to I get your point about that causing micro stress. But how how do you balance that out where we are always on call, as you write in your book? It's 24-7. There's so much noise. There's so much clutter. You want to make sure that the person understands the message and the the importance, the urgency, the severity of it. And it may cause micro stress, but I I need to get it done. So how do you balance that? Well, there's nothing wrong with that, right? You're the boss and you do need something done. There's no there's no there's no reason you can't communicate that. But I think what I would do is figure out, work some things into your communication that allow both you and the person you're talking with to figure out early on if there's a problem getting it done or is this more important than something else? Even if it's like five minutes at the end of get it done, you know, what will you have to put? Can you get this done by Friday? And what will that require? Like, And if the person says, you know what, if I I was going to take tomorrow off, but I can't, I'll work straight through may say, I don't need you to do that. I I need you to just, let's make it Monday. Uh, But just starting to have the conversation about what will be required to get this done, where, where will, what will suffer or what will needs to be deprioritized to get this done? How can I help you get this done? It may be that you're not going to be doing it, but you need to talk to Jim. Let me, Jim's done it before. Go talk to Jim and he'll be helped. Like you can help get that person ready to go to be effective. It's just part of the communication. So it doesn't have to change the message that it's important, but they, you're not just throwing it over the fence to them without recognition of the context it's going to be received. And that's, that's one of the things I would say. So now I see this book as part productivity, part time management and part communications, right? That's what I'm taking away from this book right now, right? How to, how to communicate clearly and effectively how to better manage your time, because that's going to be my my next question. But it's also a book about balance, about having the balance. You know, you talk about these high performers. Well, they put so much emphasis on the outward facing, you know, appearance of, oh, I've been nominated because I'm a star on my team. But if they only knew what was going on the inside, you know, maybe they wouldn't have nominated me. Right. Right, right. That's true. That is that is basically true. So these were people that that are, were productive and were seen as stars at their organization. But if they feel like they're barely holding it together, you know, what hope is this for the rest of us, right? Because we're, we're maybe not as great at, at, at juggling as many things as they are. So there are patterns we can learn from them so that we don't find ourselves feeling in the same position or we can try to, you know, pull ourselves back from that feeling of we're about to burn out, can't hack it. And it sounds stupid to say, you know, I spend, I'm so stressed out about it 
email I got that was was two lines. But the reality of the consequences of that are, are enormous. So you do have to find ways to, yes, better communicate, manage your time, but also just be conscious of where the micro stress is coming so you can figure out, like, I, I can stop that one, I can mitigate that one, or I just have to let go emotionally, like you just said at the beginning, let go of some of these and have other things in my life that matter to me so these micro stresses don't completely grind me down to a nub. Yeah. When you break it down, like this is why everybody needs to read this book. You know, the problem is going to be, I don't have the time to read it, (laughs) you know, but but we'll get into that. So I want to point this out. I want to get into some of the specific quotes from your book, but you wrote this, a negative interaction has three to five times more impact than a positive one. So finding ways to identify and remove negative interactions can make a significant difference in your life. What happened to, if it doesn't kill you, it will make you stronger? <laughs> well, we all, I mean, there's a lot of stuff trying to kill us, right? We we do yeah, know that there yeah. are a lot of attempts to try to kill us. That, I mean, that's, a, I think that's a really powerful insight because so, for so many of us, the, the conventional advice about how to deal with stress is, um, stuff you can do to make yourself stronger to take more. So it's meditation and mindfulness and gratitude, things that are about, I need to be stronger and find some real inner grit so I can just deal with this stress that's on me, which is, those are not bad things. Those are good things. But wouldn't it be nice if you realize that you could sort of remove a couple of negatives and it would have a, a really big impact on your life? Just even to, we advise people to try to remove two or three micro stresses and that will take two or three negatives out of their everyday life in a way that will feel a lot better. There's just lots of research that says that the negative has up to five times the impact of a positive. So take out a negative before you have figured that you have to add five extra positives. And I think it's just higher leverage opportunity. But, but, you know, I, I think of, you know, again, when I think about raising my, I have four kids, you know, I would say to them, look, I'm not going to prevent you from falling down. But I'll be there to help pick you up sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, because that's the way the world operates. The world always isn't fair. I said, the single worst thing I could do for you in your first 18 years of life is bubble wrap you to protect you from the outside world. Because at some point, you're going to have to take that bubble wrap off and you're going to be like a, a, a China doll. Right. Where you, you know, you're going to break it. You know, somebody brushes by you and it, and you're going to shatter. So. I think you even said it earlier in this podcast that it's okay to have some micro stresses because that almost tests your like immune system, right? Or your, your defense system, right? Right. Okay. You know, I knocked that one way. I knocked that one away. I'm getting better at this, you know, I'm, and, and because I can't prevent people from giving me stress. I mean, my interaction with people is that they're stressed out and they're going to bring their stress on me. But I need to have a defense mechanism that just pings it away. Is that a good way to look at it? Or is it to, just to say, oh, I see micro stress coming from you. I'm going to avoid you. No, we can, we, we're realistic. We know none of us can avoid micro stress in our life at all. Like it's going to happen. It's just the reality of life. But but what you're talking about, I think, is something that's really interesting. And we talk about in the book, which is building resilience, right? Yes. So it's not just, you know, yes, remove some if you can. Um, but it, one, one of the 
powerful things that the people who were better, I think I call them the 10 percenters um, in, in our research was they were actually better at not just building internal grit for that resilience, but you, you, you talked about, I'll pick up, you know, my son, I'll, I'll, I'll pick you up when you fall down. We, we determined that the people who were best at coping with micro stress actually build resilience through connections with other people. So it wasn't just that they had to be privately stronger, but they had a group of people and not just your spouse or one person. They had a range of people they could ask for advice, get, see a path forward through something, someone that would just make them laugh in the right moment, a, a, you know, a dark humor moment, that yeah. all these small ways of having kind of people that you can connect, they don't have to be ride or die friends, they could be a former colleague, they could be your manager, people that can help you get through some of those difficult moments are really important. And so being connected to a range of people provides a kind of like your go-to team for resilience. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to just be stronger, you will get stronger from, from going through this experience, experience but there are experiences where it's just really great to have people help you get through them. One of the examples in the book that I thought was really powerful was a guy who was, I think, chief of anesthesiology at a major New York hospital who had to come into work during the pandemic. And then he, he had to keep his team coming in. And they, in those days, in the beginning of the pandemic, they didn't know if they were going into, you know, a death trap because we didn't yeah. know what was happening. So it was, it was frightening to keep his team coming in and going into surgery. Um, he was able to get through that really difficult time not just because he had some integrate, he did, but because he had like a whole range of people he could tap to help him with some of the smaller things. Like another department had lent him some administrative staff time. So he didn't have to worry about getting some small things done. And his former boss was just a really great sounding board on how he was managing. And so it's not just that when you think about difficult times in your own life, it's not just how strong were you, you get stronger, as you say, going through experiences, but who helped you through it? And and that's what you want to make sure you develop are people, again, in a range of relationships who can help Help you get through those difficult times too. So we talk a lot about in our podcast trust and accountability. I say there are five levels of trust, right? So people you meet on the street or in stores or wherever, you know, they're at that that level one. They, they're not. I always say trust but verify. Ronald Reagan, right? <laughs> the, that's level two. But everyone right. else starts at level one. But then when you get into levels three, four, and five. Now, five is somebody you trust, the ride or die, right? You trust with your life. Yeah. I don't think anybody should ever have more than a handful of people that are that are a level five in terms of trust. So most of the people that we work with and live with and are friends with are somewhere in that level three and level four range of trust. I will tell you that my biggest issues, and when I look at past mistakes, is that I didn't have enough people at that level four. Mm-hmm. Now, letting people in, I, I, I was I was a level four for a lot of people because I was a good listener and I could offer some advice and mistakes that I made myself. But I I wouldn't always let people in, and I found that to be a huge mistake. And then, hand in hand with trust is accountability. Like, you know, you need to be accountable to others and, and other people need to be accountable to you. So how important is that trust and accountability in dealing with micro stresses? 
Well, it, it, that is actually one of the micro stresses is what we call it lack of trust. So we don't mean mistrust, but lack of trust with the people that you're working with. You're talking about a broader section of life, but we talk about it in terms of work. And it's not because they have done evil things or you think they're out to get you. It's just because, again, the reality of the way we work, we're, we're put together with people so quickly. We just don't have time to build up that level four level of trust. So it's so you start off being disadvantaged where you just don't know people well enough to feel like you can trust them in that way. Um, so one of the things we suggest are, are finding small ways to build trust with people ah, that can be yeah. not necessarily internal, like, you know, revealing your most innermost thoughts, but um, asking them to help you on something you're struggling with or demonstrating stepping up so you can help them when they're struggling with something. Just being bu- building trust in small ways will will get you to that level four. But if you start thinking, I don't have enough people at level four, you know, my sub level fives are sacred. It's going to be an overwhelming burden to think about getting there. But if you think actively about, okay, I need to start building, let's just say work trust, work trust with each other, where we understand each other's competencies. We know what we can count on each other to do. We understand we can go to each other and get help. That's going to ladder its way up so that you start to really build trust to get yourself up to that point. But it's overwhelming to think about going from level, what was your first one? Level one to level four. Yeah. Level went to level four um, too quickly, but you but you just ignore the reality of life is it takes a long time to build that. It just does. But if you do it in small ways, you'll start to build up trust so that you can, again, relieve micro stress from each other, but hopefully build to a deeper relationship as well. I think some of the fear is that you want somebody to be a level four, but they don't want to be. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, you know, you're yeah. going to, you're going to, you're going to share some of your, you know, innermost secrets and problems with somebody and, and, and they don't, you feel like they don't want that burden, you know, in the book. And and this brings me to my next question in the book, you wrote uh, the percentage of people who say they don't have a single close friend has quadrupled in the last 30 years, according to the survey on American life, lack of these kinds of relationships has a mortality rate equivalent of, to smoking 15 cigarettes yep. a day. Yep. So, so I think this all kind of ties in together is, do you remember years ago, this was even pre, pre ink days, but Faith Popcorn wrote a book called the popcorn effect. Do you remember her? Yep. I do. I do. And she wrote in, in a chapter in that book, the cocoon effect, right? The cocoon, a cocooning where she talked about, and this is like in the early nineties where it was, I think I was 10 when, when she wrote, <laughs> but um, me too, me too. Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, but she wrote about how, and this again, you know, she was like, like a forward thinking and she just said how we're slowly building this cocoon in our lives where we're, we're going to be in our houses and communicating with people from our house. And, and we're going to start to live these solitary lives. You know, and and again, I got to go back and read it. But when I think of that, I think about how much the Internet has has done that to us, where when you get on a plane or a train or even walking down the street, everybody's on their phone. Yes. Nobody's looking up. Nobody's seeing the big picture in life. Put your phone away. Just try it. I remember writing this five years ago. I wrote a blog about how I how I uh, what I call it. Um, uh, I cut the cord, you know, whatever or uh, whatever. I, I detached myself from my phone. Of course, my wife freaked out because she was trying to get a hold of me. I don't think I told her that I was doing this, <laughs> but it was it was just for twenty four hours, right? And just you, you know, and how um, 
it was it was liberating, but there was this sense of like withdrawals that uh, suddenly I'm not I'm not connected with the world. But all of this is making us lonelier, and it 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 doesn't allow us to get to that level of trust. I feel like with other people because we haven't really worked to establish the relationships because we're our attention spans have decreased all all of these things feel like they're 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 like we got to put down technology and we got to look each other in the eye and we got to have uncomfortable conversations and we have to grow with each other right like i mean for that number to quadruple right in the last right. 30 years right. is alarming right. It's really people, sad. How how do how do people change it? How do people start to develop the level four relationships of a trust and, and accountability with each other? Well, if if you think about going like trying to find new best friends or new even really good friends, that can feel overwhelming. There's been yes. research that says it will take I think it's 200 hours of investment of time to bring someone from a casual acquaintance to a genuine you know close friend. And as you say, how do you know that person even wants to be my friend? That that feels like overwhelming odds. Um, so one of the things we suggest in the book is that you maybe find smaller moments of connection with people. You can build from there, but start with not. It, you say put down your phone. It's a really great example. One of my favorite examples in the book is someone who found we called it a moment of purpose, but she was in the line at CVS to get her get a prescription or get her um, COVID shot. I can't remember which. And there was an old man who was probably like in his late 80s who got up to the front of the counter and said um, he wanted to figure out how to get a COVID shot. And um, the th person at the counter said you have to book that online. And he was clearly flustered. I don't you know I don't know how to do that, and I can't make an appointment for you here. And then she stepped out of line. The person in the book book and went over to him and said, let me see if I can help you. And so they sat down together. She went on her phone, look, I can get you an appointment and, you know, tomorrow afternoon, such and such place. So just in that tiny moment, she connected with another human being that she would otherwise have just kept blinders on, gone up to the counter. And she just felt so good about seeing another human being as a person. In small ways, you can start to build up to those level of friendships. If you just take baby steps and just, we call them authentic moments of connection, small moments, as opposed to just thinking you have to put those 200 hours in and hope the person wants to be your friend too, you'll build it again in a laddering way if you pay attention to the small opportunities you have to look people in the eye and connect to them as human beings. And there's a lot of, of research evidence that being connected to and talking with people who are different from us is really good for your brain. You know, you talk about the cocoons, right? You you talk, you, you think the thoughts you always think and the people that are in your life always, you know, you circle around the same logic. Our brains grow and stretch and become more creative and become more resilient just by having other people people's uh, perspective in there and seeing how they solve problems. There's, there's just a lot of good for you being connected in some ways to other people who are different from you, different age brackets, different jobs, different socioeconomic brackets. All that stuff is really good for you and has the benefit of building some surprising friendships. One, one of my favorite stories in the book is a, a neurosurgeon who found himself playing in a rock band, a casual bad, as he described it, rock band with 20-somethings because he used to play guitar and he hadn't played for a long time. And so now he was becoming friends, maybe not level four friends, but friends with guys he was playing in a rock band with and loving it. It was just a different escape for him in a different way and making new friends and new connections in a very unlikely circumstance, but one that was really happy. I love that story. And you realize that all of that is possible when you put down the phone. I think yes. I think the I think the the smartphones are not so smart. I think that they when we look back on this time, 
will realize that, you know, this is years ago. This is my grandfather said to me, you know, we'd be on the phone back in the day with the 60 foot cord that would go from the kitchen to the hallway down the basement <laughs> stairs. Right. And my grandfather would, you know, say, oh, damn it, I'm going to trip over this stupid cord. And he would open the door and he'd say, the phone is for communication, not conversation. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That's not that's not bad advice, actually. Right. right. The things I remember. Right. The, the, <laughs> but these are all of the pings that I'm getting from from this conversation and from your book. It's that, you know, seeing the big picture, you can actually tie in that how to measure your life, you know, in with this book. And you got a nice one two punch there, I think. <laughs> You wrote another thing you wrote in the book about purpose, which I loved. It said your definition of purpose was living small moments more richly with others. I love that. I love the definition. I love what it means. And it's, you know, like sitting down, having a good meal and not having your phone out, you know, being proactive. You, you talk a little bit about mindsets, too. We talked about that proactive versus reactive mindset. I don't think in the world today it allows us to be proactive. We have to purposely do that, right? You have to think, okay, here's my agenda for today. Here's what's urgent. Here's what is important. This is what I need to get done. Now, as Bill Parcells used to say, the coach of the Giants, uh, every day, five things are going to go wrong in your business that you didn't anticipate. And you have to react to them, but you don't have to let them take over your day. You know, you you can be in control of when you decide that they're going to happen. So you can go back to your agenda. And, and it reminds me of, of something else that you wrote, which I want to talk about. One errant text, one errant text or email uh, or other small disruption can derail you from your task at hand for up to 20 minutes. Now, I call that the rabbit hole. Right. I will actually <laughs> say to myself, like if I get stuck, you know, watching videos online or suddenly I'm talking to a friend of mine in the middle of the day. Two words will pop into my head that will immediately stop everything. Rabbit hole. And yeah. I will say, you know what? I got to go. I got to right. go. I'll call you back at the end of the day. Or I'm watching these. My daughter will send me a TikTok video. And all of a sudden <laughs> it's like now I'm watching, I'm, you know, 15 minutes into it. And I say, rabbit hole. <laughs> Get back to what it is that you're doing. <laughs> but this is kind of like big picture thinking, what you're talking about. You have these micro stresses that are invisible to you, but it's the death by a thousand cuts. You want to live a purposeful life. You want to live and enjoy these small moments, taking them in and not looking back on it and saying, oh, I wish I enjoyed that moment more. But it really comes down to being in control of your life and you deciding your time management, what's important to you, not allowing other people's stresses to overwhelm you. You don't take on other people's burdens. So that's almost like detached emo emotion when dealing with them. Is that a pretty good? Yes. Yes, like it is. Amazon yep. book review. 
<laughs> I, yes, and please go on and write it when, when you've got a chance. I will. Um, it, it is because uh, I think that the purpose thing is a really important point about being proactive because so many people think your sp- purpose is supposed to be this really lofty thing, right? You're going to cure cancer or you're going to you know run a marathon to raise $100,000 for charity. Those are great things. But right. if that's our bar, so many of us will feel no purpose in our day We're, versus you really can find purpose by being present with the people you're with, by, again, putting down the phone, by taking a few moments to connect with someone personally before you launch into a, a business meeting or just, you know, I know it personally with my family, when the phone is down and you're looking your kids in your eye, you're, you're actually enjoying being with them and connecting for the day versus us trying to multitask and, you know, kind of half distractedly looking at our phone. There's so much joy that we can find. And it's so powerful an antidote to micro stress, right? Because micro stress isn't going away. So, but having the, the, the joy and purpose of small moments of connection with other people can make a really, really big difference in your life. They're like even just being in your yard and working on the weekends and connecting with your neighbors like that. Those are those are moments of joy that you can share, however brief, that can make you feel purpose for the day. You're part of a community as opposed to just, you know, a person trying to keep your house looking better, looking nicer than everyone else's. Um, I think the way you just described it at a high level is a great way to think about it. So we're in the home stretch, which really is a bummer because <laughs> I love talking to you. I've I've done so many mental exercises while we're talking about things that I need to do to improve my life. It's funny. I I was joking around even before I got on with you today. Like, you know, I'm not stressed at all. I'm, I'm, you know, I have no micro stresses and, and I know I'm pretty good about it, but I can definitely see cracks in the foundation. Yeah. You know, where I, I know I can be better. And, and that phone is definitely one of them. You know, where I'm, I feel like I'm on the weekends, especially, I just don't want to pick it up. You know, it, people have said, people that I know that are, are happy, really, this comes down to being happy, I think, right? How to be happy in your life, how to, how to have purpose, how to live the life you want to live, and how to be happy. You know what? Don't pick up your phone the first thing you do in the morning. Don't let the phone be the last thing you look at before you go to bed at night. In fact, put the phone in another room to charge so that it's not even in the room. I, for years, I was the guy who was picking up the phone before my feet hit the floor. Yeah. Oh, crap. Oh, crap. Oh, crap. You know, problem, problem, problem. And those are the micro and maybe sometimes macro <laughs> stresses. And, and my feet haven't even touched the ground yet. And now right. I'm dealing with it. And I realize, and I've come to realize this, that if I want to be in charge of my life, then I can't be a slave to that phone. And and I use the phone as kind of like the as as the the you know where I'm gonna vent all my stresses towards, but it's more than that. And and here's one thing that you again you wrote in the book. You say, like, how can things like meditation and yoga play into microstep? Do they do they help manage it? What I like about those two examples is that it forces you to take time out from everything that you're connected to in life to literally just think about like moving your body and staring into the ether. And being well, I also think it gives your brain a rest, right? It gives your brain a chance to kind of rest and and 
problem solve. I always believe the brain does its best problem solving in your sleep. That's just my personal um, yeah. that thing. So I think sleeping on problems, I think meditation, kind of getting out of the reactive posture, you know, of constantly reacting to stuff and then sort of getting to a neutral place. Let's just say at a best case, a neutral place so that you can then proactively problem solve then or get ahead of something or put something in perspective. I think those things are all really important. I think, you know, you're overwhelmed with micro stress when you're reacting all the time and everything's about scrambling because something happened, you got to respond to that. Something happened, got to respond to that as opposed to, as you say, sort of planning and thinking and proactively trying to shape how you spend your time and who you spend it with and what you're trying to accomplish. And they're, they're two different mind states. And so if that can help you get to that neutral place so that you can be proactive, that's a very good thing. But we do a workshop. I do. I co-host a workshop with somebody who actually I enjoy working with very much. And it's called Bricks or Sticks. It's a workshop for business owners. And in the second week, we talk about mindsets. So I'm going to ask you now in public, I want to borrow some of these tidbits that we've shared. And I'll give full credit to you. And I'll put your micro stress effect book in the second week. And I'll say, because I've learned something today about that, about moving from a reactive to a proactive mindset, you know, understanding that there are these little micro stresses that will try and flip your switch from proactive to reactive. Now we've identified them. So I think that's fantastic. There's my last question for you. You spent what? Almost four years between the the time you started thinking about this book and researching it to where it just came out. Give me some examples of how your life has changed in that time. So I really, it's always broad. We both tried to practice what we've learned. I'm not even saying we're going to preach. We've, we've learned from from the high performers um, who did this better than the rest. But um, it, during the pandemic, this was invaluable to me because the pandemic would filled our lives with stress, micro stress all the time. One of the things I did was um, reach back to some slightly dormant friendships. I have two of my close friends from college um, live within an hour, but just life had gotten in the way. We hadn't seen each other very much. So during the pandemic, we just made the point of getting to together and we would go hiking. It was it was a twofer, right? We were getting some physical activity. We were getting outside. I'm looking back and laughing now because we hiked in the woods with masks on because we didn't know what was safe. <laughs> and I've got some great pictures of us with our masks oh on, sweaty. God. But but again, making time for that in some small way became really important. So the hikes led to just being reconnected in a really powerful way. They're just in my, you know, talk about the resilience, the people you can tap for resilience. They're just now in my everyday resilience tapping network we did a girls trip together and it just i just feel so connected to them and we've seen each other through death of a parent and healthcare issues and and things like that so that's one and rob and i for sure tried to do it even in our own work together our own like taking a few minutes to pause before the end of the meeting to make sure we're on the same page just like to avoid the the spiral of micro stress that would come from him thinking i'm doing something i'm thinking he's doing something or we're disagreeing on something so we tried to really get to the point where we got good at some of the best practices to avoid that stuff and then also even even no matter how busy no matter uh, how you know crammed in our schedules are working together we just try to connect with each other just you know laughter or you know a joke here and there it just just again the small moments of, of connection and i've tried to apply that out to the rest of my life too one thing he and i have done is this experiment where we've tried to get back in touch with people that are friends but we just haven't been in touch with for a while asking them for to do an eight minute phone call with us and we laugh about eight minutes they're like you don't want eight fifteen, you don't want 840 but the idea 
idea is that in eight minutes, if you agree on eight up front, I actually put a timer on and put the it, it, it the buzzer goes off so that neither one of us feel the burden of going beyond that. You can catch up with someone in eight minutes in a way that reminds you why they were in your life and reconnects you without it being a, such a big time burden that it feels overwhelming. And we've done we've done dozens of calls where we've really been like great glad to be back in touch with people. So those are all the things that are like positive ways to inoculate ourselves against the micro stress in addition to trying to consciously recognize them and and minimize them when we can. All right, I got some homework. Uh, <laughs> I, I am I am literally going to go through you know my contact list and look at people that I haven't talked to in a while and uh, reach out to them and what just set it up up front. Say eight minutes. Say tell you me doing an experiment. It's it's okay that it's eight minutes and everyone will laugh and then you'll learn some amazing things about people. Right. And what I will say is, though, I'm going to do it at the end of the day, either. Be, but, so I break my day down into four times. My time, prime time, downtime, my time. Okay. My time is any time before. It's usually before eight or nine o'clock in the morning. So I'll wake up. I'll do whatever I want to do. I can do anything but work is what I try and do. Anything but work. Even if I look at my phone and I see something, I say, I'm not going to respond to it. To until it's prime time. And then prime time is the urgent and the important. And I the bar I borrowed this. I didn't steal it from Stephen Covey. But you know, he breaks down, he's all about the time management and whatnot. But I say, okay, urgent is stuff that needs to get done today. Important is the stuff that needs to get done this week. I don't allow time robbers into that time. You know, and 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 those eight-minute phone calls, as much as I'd love them. The all of a sudden it becomes 30. And that's right. that's that's my prime time, get my work done so that I'm not stressed about it. Right. Now I get into the downtime, which is usually five to six o'clock at night, and I go, okay, now I can start, you know, the everyday and non-essential stuff. I, I do that, and then I set up my day for the following day. I write down literally on a piece of paper all of the urgent and the important stuff that I need to get done. And then when it's my time. I can have those eight minute phone calls. I think it's great. I, I'm going to tell you, you're going to love it. And I would love to hear back from you once you've done it. It's really powerful to be reconnected to people. And it's a fun excuse to say, let's do these eight minute phone calls. I've let some go over, but uh, but it's just like, it's too it's too wonderful. And it's such a great way to reconnect with someone when the, you know, your, your will is there, but just time's gone past it. And I, I, can, I think I you can, will love it. I, I'm looking forward to it. I'll let you know how it goes. Let me know how it goes. I, I, That'd I be awesome. Let you know how it goes. Karen, this has been phenomenal. I can't thank you enough, one, for writing this book, uh, because I'm enjoying reading it, and I can't wait to get to the end. I feel like you have – one of your last chapters, because I peeked ahead, is about purpose, right? I think it's like yes, chapter yes. 14 or something. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, that's that's like the dessert. <laughs> I hope it is. I hope it is, because yeah, I think, I it, like I think it should be very uplifting at that point, where you feel like you can do this. You can find purpose in your life or add yeah. new purpose in your life. I feel like the first couple of chapters of me going to the dentist. Yep. Right. right? In fact, in the first chapter, your 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 example, his name is Brian. That's and he has true. chest pains. That's this true. Is very disconcerting to me. I thought you were writing this book about I don't have chest pains, but I felt like you're writing this book about me. And though he was very successful, you said he had an air of self-confidence about him. So I like that did. part. He did. He did. But, but um yeah, I, I feel like this book is, you know, it's going to it's going to smack you in the face. It's going to shake you. It's going to tell you to wake up. 
and it's going to put its arm around you and say, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. You got to wake up. You got to put your phone down. You got to open your windows. You got to enjoy the day, right? Gratitude. There's this overarching theme of gratitude. The fact that we are alive, that we were chosen, right, to be here that for this short amount of time, we have this opportunity. Don't blow it. And if you do what you're supposed to do, then you get the dessert. And you, find, and you find your purpose in life, yeah. right? And that's the next book that they have to read. <laughs> I love that, Brian. That's a great interpretation. I think that's great. And I'm hopeful to leave you with the with an arm around your shoulder at the end of this book. I think that's a great way to think about it. Well, I'm definitely going to let you know my thoughts about it. I'm taking my notes. I showed you that, right? I've got you my did. notebook with your, with your book and I've taken a lot of notes. So I will share them with you at the end of what I got from it. And then I want you to come back and I want you to talk about how will you measure your life? Will you do that? You got it. You, you got it. Happy to do that, Brian. All right. Love it. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today to the Small Business Edge podcast. Our guest has been Karen Dillon, the author of The Microstress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It. We'll put it all in our resource page about where they can find it and ways that they can reach out to you on social media and whatnot. Uh, but I'll give you the final word before before we head out. So anything you want to share with our listeners? Uh, I think the thought that you gave me with the the way you thought about the book is that it's going to be okay. <laughs> you, yes. once, once you have the language to identify what's happening to you, how it feels, and some strategies for making it better, it's going to be okay. Fantastic. All right, everybody. Have a great day. And we will see you next week on another episode of the Small Business Edge podcast. You've been listening to the Small Business Edge podcast with Brian Moran. Please visit our website, smallbusinessedge.com, for a listing of future podcasts.